Hey, really good to be back with you. As Steve said, uh, we were a part of the extended ministry of Bethel in South America for several years. And uh, we uh, so enjoyed our partnership with you and the friendships that we developed along the way. And just on behalf of my family, I want to say thank you to Bethel Church for your support and friendship for those years and now uh, beyond. I was thinking the other day that uh, the first time I started coming to Bethel Church, I think Steve either had just started or uh, maybe was thinking about uh, the church or somewhere in the process over at the other building 20 years ago. And what has been so evident over the years is that the Lord has had his hand on this ministry in a very unique way. And I so love to uh, watch that, and I pray for you guys, and I pray for him often, and just love to see what the Lord is doing, and it's a real privilege to be able to be with you guys here uh, today. So let's pray and just ask the Lord's blessing on, on his word and the preaching of his word. Father, I know very well how easy it is to stand here and uh, speak my words, and I want none of that. I want these words to be yours, inspired by you, moved by you, so take my simple words today and multiply them exponentially in the lives of your people. May they do things that I can't even dream of as the Spirit takes the truth and moves us all. So may this be about you, and may there be a wonderful blessing among your people this morning as we look to your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In November 27th of last year, 2016, my very good friend Jeff was diagnosed with cancer. But not just any cancer, he was diagnosed with the kind of cancer for which there is no cure. And up until that time, he had been having pain in his back and pain in his lower legs, and the cancer had metastasized uh, as a tumor and attached itself to his spine. By the time they found out what it was, uh, it was pretty far advanced. And November 27th of last year, he got the diagnosis. It's also when the doctors told him, there's nothing we can do for you. Uh, This will take your life. So as I sat with him uh, those early days, you know, I was the pastor, and I was supposed to have all the right great words for him. And as he processed, and he cried, and we cried, and he asked all of those questions that, we ask in those kinds of moments. And sometimes I think we're, we're ashamed to ask them outside of those moments because after all, we are very good Christians, right? We've been saved by the power of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in heaven. We know that to be very true. We're secure. We know all of those things. And then all of a sudden, life happens. And it crashes. And it's not that we don't know scripture. I mean, we can claim the verses, this world's not my home. Uh, There's nothing that can separate me from your love, Lord. Uh, The love the Lord is with me, who can be against me. We know all of those. We can even rattle off some really good Christian cliches, like we're reading the, the newest Hallmark card. We can do that, and we can sound really spiritual when people say, brother, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great today. But in our hearts, there's a question, isn't there? And we all have the same question. 
And the question is, why? Why? Why, God? Why me? Why my family? Why now? Why, God? And, and, then, and then here's what we do. We, 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 we usually tail along with the why. We, we ask questions like, Lord, haven't I loved you enough? Haven't I prayed enough? Haven't I given enough to the church? Haven't I served you in the way I should have? I raised my kids in the church. Lord, why? And then in the darker days, we ratchet up to the next level, and we say, Lord, I believe you have all the power in the world to heal. Why won't you? I believe you can come and help. Why won't you? Why is it, Lord, that you are right now silent? Don't you care? Why, God? And one of the sobering truths of life is that you either know what I'm talking about right now or someday you will. We will all walk that road and we will all feel that pain. Last week I was having supper with some friends in their house and we we're sitting around the table after supper as you know how it goes and everywhere laughing and having a good time and and the lady moved the conversation to some other things. Um, she was a cancer, breast cancer survivor, and she talked a little bit about some of the things that she had been learning and had learned through this process. And then we shared a little bit about a struggle that we're going through, and we're talking about it. And, and so my friend asked me, Scott, what is the Lord teaching you through this hard moment? Well, right at that moment, we heard a voice from the other room. It was Alexa. You know who Alexa is, right? Amazon Echo, Alexa, what's the weather like today? Alexa, will you play that song? You know, Alexa, it was Alexa. She was eavesdropping, which is a little spooky, right? So nobody said, Alexa, what do you think? This was just a question. The next room over to me from this lady, Lord, she's, and asked me, what is the Lord teaching you? In this moment. And right then, Alexa says, I'm sorry, I do not have an answer to that question. <laughs> and then we kind of laugh, ha ha ha. And then the, the, there's a sobering truth behind that. Because in the midst of hard moments, we have way more questions than we have answers. Alexa was right. We all want to know why. And that's how it was for my friend Jeff. As we sat together and he asked me those why questions. And and just to let you know how it was, I heard him say this to his wife. It looks like we're not going to have that happily ever after we thought we were going to have. Why? And I think what makes this kind of a question and this kind of a situation so much more difficult is that this is a good guy. He goes to church. He's a leader in the church. His wife is a leader in the church. This is a good family. And if I had my way, Lord, there are all kinds of people that kind of, from my point of view, deserve this. This is not one of them. Lord, why this guy? How is this fair? The psalm that we're going to be looking at today answers that question. Psalm 42. If you have your Bibles or tablets or phones, will you please go there with me? 
Psalm 42. Now, I also want you to know that when I told Jeff, my friend Jeff, that I was going to be speaking today from Psalm 42, he said, this psalm right here has become very, very precious to him. And as the storms of his life have come, this has been like an anchor for him. And so I asked him, I said, Jeff, what do you want me to tell the people? Some of what you hear today comes from a man who is dying of cancer. In a sense, it is his sermon to all of us. Psalm 42. It says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep, At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night his song is within me. A prayer to the God of my life, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So if you go back to verse 1, I want to show you some neat things as we get going to set us up for what this psalm is trying to say. If you look at verse 1 and then let your eyes go north a little bit up the page, you're going to find a couple things. You're probably going to find a heading that says, Book 2. You see that in your Bibles? Book 2. And then underneath that, it says, To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Now, what we do when we read the psalm is we just skip over all of that and we start reading. But there are some hints at the purpose of Psalm 42 that we get from that heading. Let me tell you what they are. A long time ago, some ancient scribes divided the book of Psalms into five subsections or five subbooks. One, two, three, four, five. Psalm 42 begins book two of the five. It's also kind of like the flagship that sets the tone for the rest of the books, uh, for the rest of the chapters in book two. Now, if you look there uh, pretty closely, you'll find that the author is identified as the sons of Korah. Well, each of the books, the sub-books of Psalms, they have different characteristics. And one of the characteristics of book two is that several different authors wrote the Psalms that we find in book two. Evidently, the Psalm, this Psalm 42 was either written by the sons of Korah or was written by David and given to the sons of Korah 
who then popularized uh, the psalm. Well, then you say, well, who are the sons of Korah? The sons of Korah were a group of priests that were charged with the ministry of singing and worship in the temple. So we're talking about the Jewish temple in Jerusalem um, a long time ago. So they were kind of, in a sense, if you can think in your mind, they were kind of these people. They were the praise band for the temple worship. So as people would come in for sacrifices, or they'd come in for festivals, or they would come in for the reading of the word, there was always songs being sung and music in the background. And the people that were in charge of the music that was going on in the background were these people right here, the sons of Korah. So they're the ones that oversaw all that related to the singing and music within the temple. So what that tells us, before you say, well, so what? Well, what that tells us is that this Psalm 42 was used in public worship. Throughout the entire book of Psalms, we have all these songs, right? They're all song, they're all, they're, there's meter, there's rhyme, there's music that goes with them. Most of that has been lost. But some of the Psalms were used in the public worship by the Jews in the temple, and this was one of them. Now, it's important. We're going to come back to that a few times. The second thing that we find is the second part of the heading. It says, a maskil of the sons of Korah. Well, maskil is not a word that we know, nor is it a word that is familiar in Hebrew. It's a word that's related to the idea of instruction. So what that means is that not only was Psalm 42 used in public worship by the Jews in the temple, but specifically its purpose was to instruct God's people through song. So it wasn't just the, the, the good song and happy lyrics and something that, that really gets everybody going. There was definite instruction, teaching that happened as part of uh, the song. It made me think and remember this week of uh, several of the songs we learned as kids. Remember the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see, because the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. And and you almost can imagine mommy bending over the little three-year-old girl and singing the song or putting her to bed and singing the song. Now, it's a catchy little tune, but there's definitely instruction behind it. And that is exactly how this psalm was intended to be used uh, by the Jews. Now, what's interesting as we come to verses 1 and 2, this is a song that we used to sing. Now, remember back in the 90s, if you've been around the church for a long time and all the popular choruses of the 80s and 90s, we had a chorus that went along with verse 1. Do you remember the chorus? As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Remember that? How many of you remember that? Yeah, how many of you recognized the tune when I sang it? I'm so sorry. All right. So that's the song. And and there's a lot of really great songs. But this was a song that was used by the Jews in worship. And now 2,000, 2,500 years later, we're still singing it, which is really, really interesting. Now, verse 1 and 2, they all have the same idea. It has the imagery of the deer or an animal that is scrounging around for water. And, and as it searches for a stream or a brook, and, and it has a parched mouth, and the author says, that's how I desire you, O Lord. That's verse 1. Verse 2, same idea. You have this soul that is thirsty for God, for the living God. And so verses 1 and 2 sets us up with this imagery. And if all we read are verses 1 and 2, we miss the entire song. Because verses 1 and 2, we come away with this idea that this author is like, 
the super spiritual guy at the heart of his heart. He just can't wait to be near to the Lord. He can't wait to, to draw closer to the Lord. His desire by day and desire by night is all for the Lord. Problem is, the rest of the psalm says something very different. So I think that verses 1 and 2 really set us up before the author kind of twists psalm into real life. Because the real life that we find, starting in verse 3 and beyond, is very different than an author who just longs for the Lord. Let me show you what it says. First in verse 3. In verse 3, he says that his enemies say to me all the day long, where is your God? We get the same thing, this very same idea in verse 10. But in verse 10, not only do they say to me all the day long, but he says, it's like a deadly wound in my bones. In other words, it's like a stab in the back. When those adversaries, those enemies say to me, oh, where is your God now? And the idea behind that is, oh, you followed the Lord, you've gone to the temple, you've done all the right things, you've tried to live holy, but look what happened to you. Where is your God now, who you said was so powerful, who you said would do anything for you, who you said loved you so much, where is he right now? And this author is cut to the core, because his very enemies are looking at the situation, and they're going, ha, 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 where is your God now? That's verse 10. And it's really not the only place we find that idea. Just the other day I was reading, I was reading in Job 19. And in Job 19, Job is sitting around going through a really hard time in his life. He's sitting around with these guys that it's funny the Bible calls friends. And in Job 19, he says this. He says, those I thought were my friends have now become my enemies. And maybe that's the enemies that this author is referring to. Maybe these are guys that used to be his friends. They obviously know him. They obviously know the situation that is going on. It's a very public situation, it looks like. And they're the very ones that are taunting him. Where is your God now? And that taunting that we read two times now is kind of like, Oh, you high and mighty churchgoer. Oh, you who say you follow the Lord and you believe with your whole heart. Look what he did to you. And I think for so many of us that, that, that either go through or maybe right now are going through those really hard moments, we know that that would be a sting. That's like a whip across the back and a, and a stake in the soul because of there's, there's a small truth in it that we feel and wonder ourselves. Where are you, God. And I think what is so haunting is that at times we feel like the Lord has abandoned us. And when we look from our finite perspective, from the vantage point that only we have, we wonder, Lord, where are you? Lord, how can this be your plan? How is this good? You said you're working out everything for my good. How is this good? This isn't good. This is bad. This is hard. This is difficult. I am despondent. I am depressed. Lord, where are you? Listen, if you've ever felt that, I want you to know something very, very important. I want you to know that it is a natural response when times are tough to wonder if the Lord has abandoned you. 
And sometimes I think we as Christians, we, 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 we try to put on this like a bigger than life kind of face where everything is great no matter how bad it is. And we try to pretend like it's all great and we come to church and people say, oh, how are you doing? And we're all doing great. But in our heart, we are feeling and thinking, the Lord has left me all alone. And if you've felt that, I want you to know that you are, you are normal. You're not sub-spiritual. You're not a terrible sinner for feeling that way. You are actually normal. In fact, this author right here in the inspired word of God says, I felt the same way. And what really I find helpful is the person that comes along and say, oh, when I went through my hard time, the Lord just carried me. And you think, I don't feel like he's carrying me. I feel like he kind of dropped me back there. I don't want you to feel that way. Because I think it's natural. But I also think it functions for us in a very healthy way I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. But evidently, that's how this author was feeling. He was going through tough stuff. There were circumstances that were obviously very public. His enemies, or maybe his frenemies, were actually taunting him. Where is your God now? And you think, boy, this guy really must have been going through something. Well, he says that not only were things bad on the outside, but then he opens up his soul a little bit to us to show us what was going on in the inside. Look what he says, verse 3. He says on the inside, talking about what's going on inside his emotions, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. In other words, all I can do is cry. Or maybe we would say, I feel like I'm always on the verge of breaking down. And of course, you never want to do it in public because who wants to see somebody walking along crying, right? But when you're by yourself, when you're in bed at night, that's when it begins to flow. You begin to think about all that's happened and the despondency takes, takes hold and tears begin to flow. The author says, that's where I am all day, all night. He says in verse 7, He says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. That's the idea of he's feeling like he's drowning under the pain. Or maybe he's saying, I'm I'm, I'm just right here above the waterline, and I'm just barely hanging on, and waves of agony and waves of pain are crashing over me, and I'm just barely holding on. And it culminates... To this prayer, actually, in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And to show you how bad it was for him, look what he says in verse 4, a little more specifically. Verse 4, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Here's what he's saying. I remember a time back then, back over here. Oh, I so love to pray. I love to read my Bible. I love to come to church. I love to raise my hands in worship. I just couldn't have enough of the Lord. But that's not what I feel today. I remember what it was like to love to pray, but today I have nothing to say. I remember what it was like where I couldn't get enough of the word and all I wanted to do was study and really get my my fingers in it and today I can't even crack the Bible. I remember I used to love to go to worship and sing and see everybody. It was the greatest time and now I sit in church week to week and I can't even open my mouth. I remember the way it used to be. 
but he says that's not the way it is today. So this guy was going through it. And I bet there's people sitting here that are going through something. And you would say, if you were really honest, I sit here today and my heart is broken. And I'm here out of obligation, but I'm not here because I want to. And you remember better days. And you sit and you wonder sometimes, what happened between that moment three years ago when I was there with Jesus, and today I'm just dry. I'm parched. It's like I'm in the middle of the desert. Lord, what has happened? And the author of Psalm says, I'm there. I want you to know that part of the natural part of being human is a brokenness, a a, a time, a crisis in life, hard moments are part of human life. And brokenness can stifle and often stifles spiritual desire. It's a very normal thing. And I think that's how the author sets us up in verses 1 and 2. Remember, he says, he, we get this image of this, this wonderful spiritual man. Oh, the longing of my heart is for the Lord. It's like a deer scrounging for water. That's how it is with the Lord. And then we have the rest of the chapter that says, uh-uh. That's not how it is. Because I think brokenness and hard times, what they do is so often they close us off to the Lord. But listen, I want you to know equally as much, not only can brokenness sometimes stifle it, but I want you to know that it doesn't have to. And what I have found, and I'm still learning, what I have found is that is it's not that God closes himself off to us, which is what we sometimes think. What I find is in the hard times of life, we're the ones that retreat into our pain, we put up walls all around ourselves, and we dare God to get in. We're the ones that move, not him. So you don't have to let your pain squeeze out your desire for God. And in fact, I would argue that one of the reasons why this psalm right here has been so precious to the Jews for 2,500 years is because it sets up real life and the pain and the agony of real life, and then it gives practical, real solutions of what to do when the pain is almost more than you can bear. And I want to show you that, beginning in verse 5. And I want to tie together some solutions, um, and I want to tie together three different phrases. In verse 5, I want to read this again. Look what it says. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? And then it says, hope in God, for I shall again, that's future, praise him, my salvation and my God. My salvation personal, my God personal. So he says, hope in God. But, but, but to really get the idea here, you got to ask the question, when he says hope in God, to whom is he speaking? And the answer is the beginning of verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul. And then he says to his very own soul, he says, hope in God. He's preaching to himself. You see that? He's preaching to his own soul. He's preaching into his own emotions. And he's saying, hope in God. I know it's hard and I know there's pain and I know that your emotions don't want to hear it now, but hope in God. Now, why would he do that? Why would he set us up 
tear us down, and then said, preach to yourself. Well, I think he says that because what we know to be true in our minds is so often disconnected from the reality of our emotions in our own soul. We can believe anything we want up here. But what happens with our emotions is our emotions fly up and down with the ebb and the flow of life. And sometimes we keep them under control and sometimes we don't. And we almost feel like we can't control them at all. And the emotions, they fly. And so what he's doing here, he's saying, he's saying, preach to your soul, preach into your own emotions that are going everywhere, that are up and down. Preach into your tears day and night. Preach into the turmoil of feeling your own soul. Preach the hope of God. Preach the truth into your emotions. That's what he's saying here. Now, if you look at verse 11, he says the very same thing. It is word for word the same as verse, as chapter, as verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation, my God. So what he does at the end of, chap, of, of the chapter, he brings us to the culminating moment. Remember, the Jews are singing this, right? So think of the congregation, they're out singing, there's people up here, and there's, there's musical instruments, the harp and the lyre and the tambourine, they're all going up here. And they come to the big culminating moment for the entire psalm, and it culminates as preach to your own soul hope. Now, what is so fascinating, by, from, at least from my point of view, is he doesn't end the chapter on a high note. He doesn't end the chapter and say, and then everything is going to be like happily ever after. He ends the chapter saying, you got to preach to yourself. There's conflict within his own soul even at the end of the chapter. And I think that's real life. Now, as good as that sounds... I think it leaves us a little hanging. Because hope in God sounds good. Running to the Lord in the midst of our pain sounds really good. When we have sorrow and our heart is breaking, let's go to the Lord. That sounds good. But what does that really mean? What does it mean to preach to yourself hope in God? And I think the answer is found in verse 2. And this is why I think verses 1 and 2 set up the whole rest of the the chapter. It begins, as you well know now, a soul thirsts for God, for the living God, this idea that this is an author who just can't wait to have more of God. But here's what he says, and I think this is the big thread for the entire uh, chapter. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? Now for the Jew... The temple itself represented the presence of God. So when they would walk into the temple for a sacrifice or in the temple for a festival or in the temple for worship or the reading of scripture, walking into the temple was walking into the very presence of God. But I don't think that's what he means here. Some of the other translations help us, and they say this is how um, they translate this. When will I come and see the face of God? I think that the second part of verse 2 sets us up for a future. A future that is for all who follow Christ. And the future for all of us is that there will be a moment where we will stand and we will see the face of God. And every follower, I think, longs for that moment where we will see his face, we will be in his presence. But the imagery here 
is that it's coming in the future for all of us. Now, this is the key to understanding the whole thing, I think. Verse 1, my soul longs for you. Verse 2, it thirsts for you. Well, at least it used to. Nine verses then of the machinations of life, right? The emotions and the ups and downs and the circumstances and all the junk and the hardship and the pain and the agony, the disappointment that goes along with life. That's real life. But it culminates, I think, with his teaching here in the great hope that we all have for heaven. The great hope that we have in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our life, for heaven. But here's the truth that's behind that that makes it so great. In the midst of every pain and every sorrow and every broken heart, there's a great pain, there's a great truth for all of us Christians. Here it is. Every pain, every heartache, every sorrow is only temporary. Heaven is forever with Jesus. So here's the instruction. The instruction is to preach into our souls. Preach hope in God. But specifically, preach heaven into our pain. Preach heaven into our broken heart. Preach that it's not going to be forever, even though it feels like it now. There is a time coming when it will be done. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more broken hearts. It's going to be done. And then at that moment, what do we have? We have Jesus forever. Remind yourself, soul, I'm going to preach it into you. This is not going to last forever. Pain, you're not going to conquer me because in the end, I win with Jesus. You preach the hope. You preach the truth into your soul. And I think the sense here is you, you grab the pain, you grab the sorrow by the scruff of the neck, and you flail it with the character of God until it submits, until it says, I'm not going to hurt you anymore. I'm not going to flail you all over anymore. I'm going to listen. And you know what? The emotions don't want to listen. And so you can't do it once. you got to keep doing it. And you keep preaching until it complies. And the next day, it doesn't want to comply again. It's like a teenager. I have two of them. you got to do it every day. And I think that's why this psalm for the Jews has been a wonderful, wonderful song of encouragement. Life is going to happen. Hardship is going to come. Agony is part of the life, but it won't last forever. And that's our great hope. And you got to preach that into your soul. Now listen, I know I need to be done, but um, there's two big obstacles to this. And I would not do justice to you guys today if I didn't talk about the reality of two obstacles. Here's the first one. You can't preach things into your soul until you know them. In other words, you can't preach to your soul the things that you don't know. And I think the reason why, why churches have Bible studies and, and they have sermons and they have small groups and they build community and they spend so much time like Bethel Church does. I just saw on the back wall one of the values of the church is the Bible. Well, why is that? Well, it's because we as believers, we have to know what it says. And not just give kind of tacit head knowledge to these things, but to really know. And if you don't know what it says, how in the world are you going to preach truth into your emotions and your soul? you got to know those things. And not just be able to pass them on the test and write a little answer, but really be convinced in your heart of hearts that it's true that God really loves you. 
that he really is coming again, that heaven is for you. you got to know those truths. And what so often happens is we kind of feel like that someday I'm going to take this stuff seriously. But what I have found is that the people who try to wait until the times are hard to be convinced are the ones that fall the quickest. You got to prepare when times are good to be strong when the times are bad. So take advantage of those Bible studies and sermons and take notes, you know. Um, when the guy's up here preaching, uh, don't be thinking about what's for lunch and those kinds of things. Be, be serious students so that you're convinced in your heart of hearts that these things are true. Second big obstacle, and then I'm done. I think that it is far easier for us to believe lies than it is to believe the truth. It's far easier for us to believe lies than it is to believe the truth. And what I mean by that is that it's, it's far easier to believe our emotions because they're strong and they're screaming for attention and they're trying to tell you this is true and how you feel and they want to bring validity to how you feel. And it seems like we should listen to them. And I would argue that we're living in a culture that says, hey, you need to live according to your emotions because that is what truth really is. So here's what happens, I think. I think the storm comes into your life and then suddenly your emotions begin to whisper lies. And, And they whisper things like, God has abandoned you. He never really loved you anyway. The church is full of hypocrites. Everyone is against you. You are alone. Not only are you alone, but you're not even worthy to be loved. And if this is God's plan for you, he must not be good at all. And the whispers and the lies, they go on and they go on and they go on. And I think that there's a certain sensuality to those lies that make them so believable. And what I've learned, and I pass on to you guys to consider, is that the only way to stop the power of those lies is to replace those lies with the truth. And the only way to replace the lies with the truth is to be fully convinced of what truth really is. It all works together. So my friend Jeff um, still has cancer. Um, It's not in remission, but miraculously, in a way that doctors can't quite figure out, it doesn't seem to be growing at this point. So Monday, uh, again, Monday I told him I was going to be here with you guys, and I was going to be talking about Psalm 42. And I want to tell you what he said to me. And you're probably not going to believe it, but here, here's what he said. Um, we were talking about uh, when he first was diagnosed and just the incredible pain that he was in. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't lay down. He couldn't anything. The church came in. We finished a little bathroom on the main floor because he couldn't go up the stairs. I mean, it was, just, it was just awful. We had to literally have people in the church around to carry him in and out of the car. And it was all those things. It was just terrible. But here's what he said to me. He said... I kind of miss the pain of my cancer. He said, because in the midst of all the fears and tears and pain, 
I ran to the Lord and found every one of his promises to be true. And then he said, right at the end, he said, I had a longing for heaven during treatments that even today I miss. Now this is from a guy who's literally living day to day. And he says, I found every one of the truths of God's word and every one of those promises to be absolutely true. And it welled up within me a longing for heaven that even now as the pain has gone away, I miss the longing I had back then. So the instruction here in Psalm 42 is to preach into your souls, preach into your emotions the hope of heaven. And as the things, as life gets harder and the agony grows and the pain, it just seems like there's nothing that will help. Preach the hope of heaven that this pain, this hope is temporary. Heaven with Jesus is forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I believe that there are some that are sitting here today that needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. Father, forgive us for keeping our eyes so focused on all of the temporary stuff of this life and not casting them long enough towards heaven to allow the joy and the truth to funnel and filter through all of our soul and all of our body. Father, for that person that is here in great pain today that can't open their Bible, can't pray, can't sing and worship, Will you come and minister to them? Fill them with the hope of heaven. Thank you for your word. Thank you for such a practical psalm that speaks into the very life day to day that we live here today. In Jesus' name, amen.